Well, we can thank God that he's provided his church with hymns and spiritual songs as another way that we can meditate upon the gospel. And as we've sung, the gospel is not some dry, dusty message. We can sing about it. We can sing about it like we can't sing about anything else. All those country songs about red solo cups and all those pop songs about Hollywood love, they are nothing compared to what we get to sing about here on a Sunday morning. That God is holy and we are sinners and because of that we are headed for hell unless the Lord does something to save us, unless the Holy God sends his Holy Son to live a righteous life in our place and to die on the cross bearing the holy wrath of God upon himself and rise from the dead so that if we would turn from our sins and trust in him, he would save us and forgive us and transform us to make us holy like he is holy and so that we could spend forever with him. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths that we get to sing about and think about and read about and pray about and tell others about, Lord. Uh, we don't know as we ought to know yet, and so we, we still need your word, Lord. We still need to spend time with one another, preaching the truth to one another, reminding each other through song of what you've done. And Lord, we pray that uh, that would continue through the message this morning, that we would hear from your word, uh, that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand what your word says, Lord, I pray you'd grant your people discernment, Lord, in, in what I say here. Anything that is not faithful to your word, may they just reject it, Lord, and may they cling to your word, uh, not to the words of a man, but to your words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and the first 12 verses. First Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 12. Paul says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you, unless I speak to you either by way of revelation, or of knowledge, or of prophecy, or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an, un an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. I was planning on preaching these 12 verses today, and that's what I studied for this week. But as I started to write out the sermon for these verses, I realized that we were going to be a little bit lost as we got into Paul's discussion of the gifts of prophecy and tongues because we had not yet really defined what the gift of tongues is. And as we go through this chapter, Paul is not going to give us a definition for us. He's writing to believers who already knew full well what the gift of tongues was, what the gift of prophecy was, so Paul doesn't take the time to define it for them because they already know about it. So he jumps right into talking about how to properly practice these gifts. But before we can walk with him and, and understand what he is saying, we first need to understand what these gifts are. We need to better position ourselves before we start digging into this chapter. So today's sermon is just going to be 
one long introduction into what I had planned on preaching. We're going to look a little bit more at what the Bible has to say about the gift of prophecy, and we're going to look at what the rest of the Bible has to say about the gift of tongues. And once we've gotten a better understanding of what those gifts are, then we'll be able, Lord willing, next week to start marching through this chapter. So first, prophecy. And I've already talked some about this. Um, If you want to hear that, you could look back at the message from chapter 12, verses 27 to 31, where I went into quite a bit of detail about the gift of prophecy. At that, during that message, we saw that a prophet was someone to whom God revealed a message and whom he commissioned to deliver that message. And I want us to look a little bit more closely at that gift today, that gift of prophecy, and what it means to be a prophet. God put his words in the prophet's mouth, and the prophet was to deliver those words to the people unaltered. The words of the prophet were the very words of God. The prophet was not at liberty to put his own spin on things. The prophet was not at liberty to deliver his own messages that came into his own head and sign God's name to them when God had not sent him to do so. I want us to see what this concept of being a prophet is and what the gift of prophecy is. And we're going to start in the Old Testament. Let's go to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 22. First Kings 22, and this is dropping us right into a, an event in the history of Israel where King Ahab was allied with King Jehoshaphat, and Ahab had called his prophets together to discern whether or not it was appropriate to go to battle with another nation. And so he's gathered all of his prophets around him, and these are false prophets. And so they're just telling King Ahab what he wants to hear. That, yeah, you should go fight, you're going to win, everything's going to turn out just fine. But strangely, Ahab uh, listens to Jehoshaphat's suggestion that a prophet of the Lord come and tell them whether or not that's a good idea. So they bring Micaiah, who was a true prophet. 1 Kings 22, verse 13. It says, Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets, that's the false prophets, are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. That is a true prophet. What the Lord tells me to say, that's what I'm going to say. Next, let's go to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. We learn in chapter 1 about the calling and the commissioning of Jeremiah to be God's prophet. Verse 9, Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Then verse 17, God says to Jeremiah, Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. In other words, don't you dare edit what I'm going to say to you to tell them because of your fear of them. If you do that, I will dismay you. Next, let's go to chapter 26. And the first two verses. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit a word. So the Lord himself is putting quite a fine point on what he expects from his prophets. Next, let's go to the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 3, just a couple books over. Ezekiel chapter 3. 
This is the commissioning of Ezekiel. And when God's commissioning these prophets, he makes it very clear what their mission is, what their requirements from him are. Let me read the first 11 verses of Ezekiel 3. Then he, God, said to me, Ezekiel, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll. And go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. In other words, he's taking in the word of God that God wants him to speak. Verse 2, So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them, for you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take into your heart all my words which I will speak to you, and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them, and tell them, whether they listen or not, thus says the Lord God. Then go over to chapter 13. Chapter 13, the first three verses. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to them, or say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration, listen to the word of the Lord. So the Lord is calling Ezekiel to go to the false prophets, those who they're not inspired by God, they're inspired by their own imaginations, and they're speaking prophecy to the people, and they're not being sent by the Lord. Verse 3, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. Verse 6, they see falsehood and lying divination who are saying the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. They're just giving prophecies out of their own heart and mind, and they're hoping that it'll turn out to fulfill their words. Uh, Now, let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to John's Gospel, chapter 12. And here we're going to see Jesus himself, who is the ultimate prophet. He is the the prophet that was foretold uh, in the book of Deuteronomy when God said, I will raise up for you, for the people, a prophet like you, and they shall listen to him. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. And if anyone might have a little bit of leash to put his own spin on things or to speak out of his own reasoning, it would be who? The Son of God himself. But what do we see at the end of chapter 12, verses 49 to 50? Jesus said, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. There's no difference there between the prophetic ministry of Christ and those of the prophets who came before him and ultimately pointed to him. Now, when I gave that message from the end of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, I made the case there that the office of prophet and the gifting that went along with that office had ceased, along with the apostles. Since apostles and prophets make up the what of the church, according to Ephesians 2, verse 20? The foundation. They make up the foundation of the church. They and their message is what the church is built upon. And the truth that they deliver to us, we have here in our very hands 
the Word of God. That's why everything that we do in this church, we strive to do it on the foundation of what the apostles and the prophets have delivered to us. We're building on that foundation. The foundation is Christ, the Christ preached by the apostles and the prophets. We can build on no other foundation. Now, during that message, I encouraged you to be Bereans, to not just accept what I was saying. I wanted you to go and search it out for yourselves and see if it was in the scriptures. And it may be that after having done that, hopefully you've done that, that you've gone to the scriptures for yourself to determine for yourself between you and the Lord whether or not what I said was true, that there are no prophets today. And if you have done that, it may be that you have come to a different conclusion than me regarding the place of the gift of prophecy in the church today. And as long as it's the Bible that has led you to that conclusion, I respect that. I can respect that. I don't want you to follow me. I want you to follow the scriptures, what the scriptures tell you. However, though we may disagree on whether or not the gift of prophecy has ceased, there is something that we do need to agree on, and that is on how we evaluate prophets. How we evaluate prophets. We need to understand what the scriptures say about how to recognize false prophets, how to distinguish between a true prophet and a false prophet. As I mentioned in that previous message, we have no scriptural indication that the quality of prophecy or of prophets in the New Testament is any different than the quality of prophecy and the prophets in the Old. When you read the book of Acts and you observe the prophets who were ministering in the early church, people like Silas and the daughters of Philip and Agabus, there's no indication that they were of an inferior quality to the Old Testament prophets. Now, there have been made arguments about Agabus. I don't know if you'll remember this or not, but Agabus came and foretold about the arrest of Paul. And there are some who believe that prophecy is for today, and they point to Agabus's prophecy, and, and they say, look, he got a detail wrong there. So I wanted us to look at that. Let's go to Acts chapter 21. This is kind of the leading argument that I've heard anyway. Acts chapter 21. Verse 10. Luke records, As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Notice that last phrase from Agabus, because this is the phrase that um, those making this argument that I'm referring to key in on. Agabus said that the Jews will deliver Paul into the hands of the Gentiles. Let's go to verses 30 to 33, where we see this event take place that Agabus was prophesying of. Verses 30 to 33. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he, he began asking who he was and what he had done. Now those who believe the gift of prophecy is for today, they're often forced to acknowledge that prophecy today can have errors in it. And they point to this passage and they say, look, Agabus got a detail wrong. The Jews did not deliver Paul to the Romans. The Romans forcibly took him from them. Therefore, New Testament prophets can have error in their messages. That's the argument. But let's go to chapter 28 and verse 17.
chapter 28 and verse 17, Paul recounts this event of his arrest. He says, it says here, After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Paul uses the exact same word that Agabus used. Agabus said that the Jews were going to deliver, the Greek word paradidomi, deliver Paul into the hands of the Gentiles. And here Paul says, I was delivered, paradidomi, from, as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So Paul himself uses the very same language to describe what happened to him. That tells us there was no error in Agabus' prophecy. There's no evidence that the New Testament prophets and prophecies were of a different quality, a lesser quality than that of the Old Testament. We have to be careful that we don't redefine a spiritual gift in order to make it fit our experience. If I think that I have the gift of prophecy, but some of my prophecies don't come true, or they contain errors in them, the correct conclusion that I should draw is, I don't have the gift of prophecy. The wrong conclusion to draw is, well, it must mean then the New Testament gift of prophecy can contain errors. No, that is me interpreting the scripture through my experiences rather than interpreting my experiences through the scripture. We have to evaluate our experiences by the rule of the word of God, not the other way around. God's word is the lamp to our feet. God's word is the light to our path, not our experiences. We can deceive ourselves by our experiences, but the word of God will never deceive us. Now, I'm not preaching against experience. If you have come to know, if you profess to have come to know Jesus Christ and he has not transformed your life, if you've not experienced the life-transforming power of the Son of God in your life, then you do not yet know him. I am not discounting experience. Christianity is an experiential religion, the only true religion, pure and undefiled. Experience is something we ought to expect in our lives as believers, but our interpretation of our experiences cannot be the authority. The Word of God has to remain our authority. In the Old Testament, God's prophet was expected to be 100% accurate 100% of the time. The way that you could tell that someone was a false prophet was if they foretold something and that something did not come true. I know we looked at it last time, but let's look at it again in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 22. Here we really have the blueprint for what a prophet, Old and New Testament, is supposed to be. Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you, he's talking to Moses, will raise up for you a prophet like me, or excuse me, Moses is talking to the people, saying what the Lord is going to do. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the words of the prophet are the very words of God. And if someone discounted what the prophet said, they were discounting what God said. That's serious. Prophets are not someone you just brush off. Verse 20. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know 
the word which the Lord has not spoken? That is an obvious question. If, if God, if you're going to hold me accountable to whether or not I listen to a prophet, how am I going to know which prophets are from you and which ones are not? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now, was this the only way to detect a false prophet? What if a prophet gets it right? Does that automatically make him a true prophet? No. Let's look at Deuteronomy 13. There's another way that we are to evaluate those who claim to be prophets. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Now that, that's scary, that there could be a prophet who could perform legitimate signs and wonders. How are we to discern true from false in that kind of a scenario? Why would that scenario arise in the first place? Verse 3 goes on, For the Lord your God is what? Testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God. This false prophet is trying to get them to follow a different God than the one true God. And he's performing real signs and wonders. But that is a test from the Lord. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. So if someone claims to be a prophet, we not only have to ask if he's been 100% accurate 100% of the time, we also need to examine his doctrine to see if he teaches in accordance with the scriptures. If he gets some prophecies correct, if he foretells future events and does signs and wonders, but he teaches a different Christ, or he teaches a different God than the one who is taught in the scriptures, then it does not matter what he has gotten right or what wonders he has performed. He is a false prophet. In the end times, when the Antichrist arises and he ordains his own false prophet to do his bidding and to preach his own false gospel, there's not going to be any other way to discern that the Antichrist prophet is false than by this way of discerning. Is he leading me to Christ or to someone else? Let me read to you Revelation chapter 13. You don't have to turn there, but that's where I'm reading from. Revelation 13, verses 11 to 17. This is the Apostle John letting us know what's coming down the pike. Then I saw another beast. This is that false prophet. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist, in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Listen to what he does in verse 13, this false prophet. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to, to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. The false prophet of the Antichrist is going to perform wonders like you've never seen. And if you are relying upon your experience to tell you whether or not this person is true, you're going to be deceived. 
You need to listen to what he's saying. And if he's pointing you away from the true Christ, then he is not a prophet to be listened to or to be feared. The Apostle Paul himself was held to this same standard. We saw it in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 to 11, when Paul visited the town of Berea and preached the gospel to the Bereans. Those Bereans did what? They examined the scriptures daily to see whether or not what he was saying about Christ was true. So it didn't matter what miracles Paul could perform as an apostle. The Bereans were concerned about whether or not he was teaching in accordance with the word of God. That's what they were concerned about. That's why they were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. And that should be our concern as well. Now, one clarification before moving on. I am not denying that God can give people, by his providence, profound insights into others' lives to the degree that we could scratch our heads thinking, how did he know that? How did he know to come visit me right when I needed someone to come visit me? I'm not denying that God can use dreams to prompt people to seek Christ. We hear many testimonies about that from other countries. But I think we need to understand that biblical prophecy goes beyond any of that. Biblical prophecy is an inerrant, infallible, unaltered message from God himself. For you to go up to someone and tell them that you have a word from the Lord for them, or to tell them, thus says the Lord, or to say to them, I have a prophecy for you, for you to say that is to imply that you are about to give them a message that is inerrant, infallible, and unaltered, and that it would be a sin for that person to disregard what you are saying, and that they can build their faith on what you are saying. That is a dangerous and reckless thing to do. Impressions are not prophecy. Feelings are not prophecy. Strong desires are not prophecy. Now, God may use impressions. He may use feelings. He may use desires to providentially use you to impact someone's life, but that's not prophecy, biblically defined. We have to speak about our experiences the way the scriptures speak about them. For example, if I feel like someone should go into a certain line of work, it's far better for me to say, you know, so-and-so, I really feel like you should go into such and such a profession. It's far better to say that than to say, God told me you should go into such and such profession. Because if you are speaking as a prophet, you are expecting him to build his life on your word. And if he doesn't do what you've told him to do, he's sinning against God. Don't make yourself out to be a prophet when you're not. So, that's the gift of prophecy. It's an inerrant, infallible word from God himself. And to be a prophet is to speak that word to people. Now, what about tongues? What is the gift of tongues? Well, again, we have to be careful not to define this gift based on our own experiences or on others' experiences. We have to look at what the Word of God has to say about the gift in order to know what the gift is. If someone gets caught up in a worship song and his emotions run full steam ahead and he just explodes in ecstatic and incoherent speech, I cannot thereby conclude that that is what the scriptural gift of tongues is. The flip side is also true. Just because I have not personally experienced the gift of tongues, I cannot therefore automatically conclude that the gift of tongues is not in operation today. We cannot draw doctrine from our experiences. We can only draw it from the word of God. You and I have to set our experiences aside and look at what the word of God actually says. Now, the New Testament really does not have a ton to say about the gift of tongues. The only places in scripture where we get any kind of in-depth look at it is in 1 Corinthians 14 and and 12, which is what we've been walking through. But the other place is the book of Acts. So let's go back to Acts chapter 2.
And we're looking at the first four, the first four verses. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, that is, the disciples of Christ, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So in verse 4, we see that this speaking, of, this speaking in other tongues, it did not have to be learned. It did not have to be learned. The Holy Spirit was giving them utterance. He was supernaturally enabling them to speak this way. But what does Paul mean when, or Luke mean when he says they spoke in tongues? What does that mean? Well, we're told in verses 5 through 13. Verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So that tells us that these tongues were foreign languages because you have believers or Jews from other nations coming to the feast. Their native tongue is not that of the Galilean disciples, and yet the Galilean disciples are speaking in the native tongues of these foreign Jews. So that tells us that these tongues that they were speaking were foreign tongues, foreign languages. They were not gibberish. They were not some kind of heavenly language. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Again, these Jews had come to Jerusalem for the feast, but they had not been born and raised in Israel. They had been born and raised in other nations. Their native language was different from that of the Galilean disciples. And yet, these likely uneducated Galilean disciples were speaking in their tongues, their native languages. That was what shocked the Jews, the foreign Jews who had come. Aren't these Galileans? How is it that they can speak all of these languages and, and we can understand them? Verse 11 again. This is what they say. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Again, they're not speaking gibberish that had no discernible meaning. They are speaking a specific message. They are speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Their language has content to it. Verse 12. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. Now who do you suppose were the ones saying that in verse 13? It was probably the Jews who had been born and raised in Israel. And so when they heard these Galileans babbling on in other languages, which those native Jews could not understand, it sounded more to them like the ranting and raving of a drunkard. Say, these guys, they got started early this morning. When we come to chapter 10, verses 44 to 46, and chapter 19, we see this same phenomenon of speaking in tongues happen when someone comes to Christ. I won't read those, but it's clearly implied that it's the exact same sort of phenomenon taking place. When we come to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, we don't find a definition of the gift of tongues that is different from what we see in Acts. There is no definition that Paul gives. There's nothing that he says that implies that this is a different thing happening in Corinth than that which was happening in Jerusalem on that Pentecost day. The gift itself is the same. So what is the gift of tongues? The gift of tongues is the ability to speak a foreign language that you have not learned previously. 
Now that seems a little bit like a weird gift for the Holy Spirit to give to the church. What would the point of such a gift be? Well, we don't have a lot of information given to us in answer to that question, but we can look at the effect of the gift in Acts chapter 2. What do we see there that comes about as a result of this gift being exercised? We see Jews from around the world converging upon Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Why were they having to come from far-flung places? What had happened previously that put them in that position in the first place? Any thoughts? Yeah, the discipline of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord. God had exiled his people by having the Assyrians and the Babylonians conquer them and remove them from the land. The Jews were exiled to lands where different languages were spoken. And Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 21. I'll just read it to you. In 1 Corinthians 14, 21, Paul quotes from Isaiah 28, 11, where God was foretelling the judgment that was about to fall on Israel when the foreign invader Assyria would take the people captive. He quotes, he says, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So it was judgment. It was judgment upon Israel that they were transported to a land where the language of that land was incomprehensible to those Jews who were transplanted there. Now this judgment of the confusion that foreign languages brought into the life of the Israelites is reminiscent of another judgment that took place much earlier. Any thoughts as to what that might be? Yeah, the Tower of Babel. Yep. We see that in Genesis 11. We see in that chapter that all the people of the earth all still spoke one language. And they conspired together to build a tower which would reach to the heavens so that they could make a name for themselves. And do you remember what God did in response to their pride? He confused their languages. He caused everyone to all of a sudden speak a different language than the guy they were working next to. And naturally, the work fell apart, and they were scattered across the face of the earth. You tend to hang out with people that you can understand and that they can understand you. That's where all the different languages came from. What we see in Acts 2 is Babel in reverse. It is the exile of Israel in reverse. In Acts 2, instead of having different languages result in the scattering and confounding of the people, God redeems different languages, and he uses those languages to draw his people back to himself. As the Galilean disciples spoke in foreign languages to the foreign Jews of the mighty deeds of God, those foreign Jews' hearts were prepared and opened up to the gospel that Peter was about to preach. And 3,000 of them gave their lives to Christ that day. So in Acts 2, we see a missionary aspect to the gift of tongues. We can imagine that as the apostles and other believers went to the ends of the earth to bring the gospel, such a gift would have come in handy, wouldn't it? No more going to school for years on, on end to learn a language. I just show up. The Holy Spirit enables me to speak their language, and I give them the gospel. Now, we're not told in Scripture that that was how the gift of tongues was used, but Acts 2 kind of seems to point toward that direction. But we, we understand that. We understand how it would be useful in a foreign context, but what about in a local church context? What sense does it make to have that gift in operation in the local church? Usually everybody in the local church is going to be able to speak the same language. So what purpose would the gift of tongues serve in a local church? Well, turn back to 1 Corinthians 14 with me. The, the question becomes even more pronounced when we see indications in this chapter that when the gift of tongues was interpreted... 
it had very much the same function as the gift of prophecy. Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. And when Paul uses that word mystery, what does he usually mean? Previously hidden truth revealed by apostles and prophets. Previously hidden truth revealed in the person of Christ. The tongue speaker utters this. And when it's interpreted, the rest of the congregation understands it. But why go through this two-step process? When you have the gift of prophecy there, he can just cut right to the chase. You don't need to wait around for an interpreter. What's the point of having this kind of gift in the church? Well, again, we don't have a direct answer given to us, but I think there are a few scriptures that point us to a possible answer to that question. For example, Philippians chapter 2. Verse 9, speaking of Christ, Paul writes, For this reason also God highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every what? Tongue will do what? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue. Every tongue. Next, Revelation chapter 5. Verses 6 through 10. John says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb. This is a picture of Christ. A lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came, the lamb, and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then lastly, chapter 7 of Revelation Chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. Notice, it's people from all tribes and peoples and tongues. Verse 10, They cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So these heavenly scenes that we get is, again, Babel in reverse. It's the exile of Israel and Judah in reverse. We see God, instead of scattering people into different languages, he is drawing all languages, all peoples, all nations to himself. In heaven, God is going to be praised by every single language that can be found on earth. The gift of tongues practiced in the local church seems to have served to point to that future glorious reality, that that's what heaven will be like. We will all be praising God. God will save people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. Now, as we asked with the gift of prophecy, so we must ask with the gift of tongues. Is it in operation in the church today? And again, you need to search the scriptures for yourselves. And again, I'm, I'll tell you my conclusion. It's not meant to bully you. You stand before God on your own, and you answer to him for what you believe he has taught you in the scriptures. But I have to teach. So I'll just tell you the conclusions I've come to. Since the gift of tongues, once interpreted, serves the same function as the gift of prophecy, and since Scripture seems to indicate that the gift of prophecy has ceased, I do not expect to see the gift of tongues in the church today, at least not carrying that prophetic aspect. Now, does that mean that if a missionary goes to some far-off country and he's bushwhacking through the jungle and he stumbles upon a lost tribe that 
speaks a language that no one knows? Am I saying that God will not ever enable that missionary to speak their language supernaturally and give them the gospel? I can't say that God wouldn't do that. But practically speaking, when you compare the scriptural gift of tongues to the supposed tongue speaking that takes place in many churches today, it's pretty clear that the tongue speaking being practiced in many churches today is not the scriptural gift of tongues. We saw that tongue speaking is speaking a real foreign language. It's not gibberish. The gibberish that passes for tongue speaking in many American churches today, it's been studied. It's been found to not be any kind of known foreign language, nor carry the kind of hallmarks that any language has. It seems to be a modern counterfeit of what was taking place in Acts chapter 2 and in Corinth. What is often practiced today, it can also be found in false religions such as Roman Catholicism, Kundalini Hinduism, and other pagan religions. You can speak gibberish without the Holy Spirit's help. Anyone can do that. You cannot speak another language that you have never learned before without the Spirit's help. Speaking gibberish is not supernatural. Speaking an unlearned language is. Again, as with prophecy, you may strongly disagree with me on whether or not the gift of tongues is operating in the church today. And again, if your position on that is due to what you see in God's word, I respect that. I respect you for not caving in just because I said something and holding firm to the word of God. But hopefully we can agree on what the gift actually is and on how to evaluate those who claim to have that gift. If it doesn't match up with scripture, then it's not the gift of speaking in tongues. It's fine to practice the true gifts of the Spirit, for the Spirit is the one who has given them to the church as he sees fit. But it's not fine to practice counterfeit gifts. Satan is a professional counterfeiter, and we don't want Satan to have a place in our worship. Let's pray.